0: All right. Well, hey guys, welcome to the next fantastic episode of uh, theology for you. Uh, pretty excited about this episode. We're doing our first remote interview uh, with a, a good friend, uh, Blaine Vandergriff. Uh, met Blaine seems like forever ago now at uh, Boyce College when we were studying. Um, so looking forward to that. We're going to be talking about apologetics a little bit. So. Uh, thanks for joining us. did want to um, thank Grace Community Church for hosting our weekender uh, last Friday night and Saturday. It was a, a really good time. We enjoyed doing it. Looking forward to doing more uh, throughout the year. So without further delay, Blaine, how's it going?
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on. It's hey, an honor.
0: I'm glad you're here. So um, I I think if I remember correctly, when we met... It was after you know Boyce did that like send off service where it's like all the parents are crying because they're sending off their college kids, and right. uh, I think you like creeped creep after creeped after me going up the stairs. And you're like, hey man, let's read Isaiah. And it's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs>
1: that sounds about right.
0: <laughs> but it was a good time, and um,
1: I'm still trying to overcome my socially awkwardness. You, Social and, awkwardness. you and me, both, man.
0: I understand. <laughs> That's, I think that's a, actually a repercussion of going to Bible college.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> I was public schooled my. Um, I went to public schools my whole life, but I think I kind of sent me into a homeschool phase there.
0: <laughs> yeah, Bible college messed it all up for you.
1: So, I hope uh, I didn't just offend a whole lot of people. <laughs>
0: um, we'll find out.
1: <laughs> you can always edit this out, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, I can always edit that out if we need to. It gives the the show character, though. I mean, if we don't say anything offensive, then we've got issues. So so we're going to talk about apologetics um, for a little bit. So um, one reason I wanted to ask Blaine on this is, one, the past few times we've been able to see each other in person, he has talked a lot about this, and I've been impressed. And I'm like, man, Blaine's a genius. And then um, also... I know he reads one of my favorite authors quite a bit, John Frame, who <clears throat> um, does quite a bit with apologetics as well. So, uh, looking forward to that. So, if you're cool, let's just get started, man. All right. All right. All right. So, um, what, it, what? how do you define apologetics? What
1: is it? You know, the classic definition and um... – it almost seems cliche if it didn't come straight out of First Peter, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, yes. It's it's just, um, you know, in my opinion, being prepared to give uh, defense an answer for the reason uh, – when someone asks you for the reason, for the hope that's within you. And, you know, anybody who has any conversations with unbelievers knows that um, that's going to be inevitable, yeah. those questions –
0: So is it it more of a defensive position or is it more like of an offensive type of thing?
1: Well, yeah, I guess it could be both, obviously, you know. So I had a conversation recently with um, my sister-in-law's boyfriend, who's sort of a new-age pantheist type deal. So, you know, he asked me questions, and so I try to give an answer um, to his questions, and – but then I'll also have the opportunity to ask him questions and poke holes in his worldview. Uh try to get him to see the um the contradictions and the incoherence of you know an unbelieving worldview. So yeah, it's offensive in that sense too. So
0: um you mentioned worldview there. Just uh for those who might not be familiar, what's what's a worldview? I know that wasn't on the questions I sent, but <laughs> yeah. here's your here's your
1: first curveball. <laughs> yeah. Um you know It came originally from, and I'm not even sure what German coined this or if a particular German coined it, but the Weltanschauung. So, um, just a view of the world, how you think about reality, how you think about the big questions. Um, You know, where did the universe come from? Um, What's the explanation for the universe? Why are we here? Um, What is a human being? You know, how do you explain the pain and suffering in the world? I mean, those sorts of big questions would be worldview questions and one's worldview would determine how you would answer those questions
0: so um when we think about worldviews one thing that's really helped me with john uh the writings of john frame is he i think he does a really good job of presenting christianity as a worldview but also that the bible is our worldview so what role what role um Maybe a two-part question here. What role does the Bible play in formulating our worldview, and what role does the Bible play when we're defending our faith,
1: giving a reason for that hope? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. One of the things that I've recently come to love about John Frame and be fascinated with is his uh, tri-perspectivalism, you know, the triangles. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: my, my dad, yeah, my dad will not read John Frame because of all his triads. He's
1: like, I can't I, do it.
0: <laughs> I love the triangles. I love them. They're great. They're
1: great. At, well, at first they puzzled me. You know, when I first came across them, the um, I'm trying to think. The first thing I ever read by John Frame. Oh, I think it was just his essays in that book, uh, Four or Five Views on Apologetics. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I read, um, the first couple hundred pages of his systematic theology when it came out and saw the triangles and then I, I just recently finished his um apologetics book um a justification of christian belief yeah which was excellent and then oh a history of western philosophy and theology which do you finish that I I'm going to read it again yeah it's, it was incredible I couldn't put it down it was a great read mm-hmm. But anyway, the triangle. So he talks about at the top of the triangle. You have the normative perspective. Um, the bottom left of the triangle, you have the situational. And the bottom right of the triangle, you have the existential. So I don't know. I've never seen this anywhere. But if I were to think about it in his tri-perspectival way, there, the theology, um, what we learn from God's revelation in Scripture would be the norm. The norm. Yeah. Um. That would guide what we do in practice. So as far as defending the faith, theology provides our presuppositions, our foundations, our worldview. And then that will determine how we defend our faith, how we answer questions from unbelievers, how we pose questions to unbelievers, like you were talking about in offensive apologetics. And then of course the existential part would, you know, have to be the personal relationship that we have with the Lord. Did I answer your question?
0: Yeah, because the the theology um, that Scripture gives to us is what, if I'm understanding what you're saying, the the revelation of Scripture is what gives us the ammunition, if you will. So, right. the the Bible really, I think John Frame. This is going to turn into like a John Frame love fest, but that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think it's his lectures from RTS on apologetics. Where he talks about how the Bible is a worldview. Right. So so as we're Yeah, so as as we're formulating our arguments, um if we are Christians and we should have a Christian worldview, then it has to be formed by the Bible. We have no other option. Right. And then you said um, too in apologetics that, uh, you know, the the arguments we're going to use then are they're scriptural arguments, first and foremost.
1: Right. So, um, you know, if you have a particular uh, datum that you're trying to account for, say, you know, this is something that's been fascinating to me. um, The fact that human beings can – I'm a foreign language teacher, so naturally this is going to be interesting to me. But the fact that we can communicate Mm -hmm. in different languages and these – these propositions that we communicate can correspond to the physical world but they can also be translated into other languages and convey you know convey the the same proposition just in a different language and that's that's phenomenal yeah you know, how do we account for something like that and that sort of connects to you know you hear about um you know Alvin Plantinga has this brilliant argument Against naturalism, based on evolution, where he talks about how can evolution given evolution would we expect to have reliable cognitive faculties um, it's a it's a long argument, but in any case we the Christian worldview has explanatory resources um, it's testable you know so how would how do you account for logic and um, creatures with reliable cognitive faculties and um, reasoning abilities and, and then a step further from that is the application of those reason, reasoning abilities in, in human language which is phenomenal well I think the fact that we are created in God's image might have something mm-hmm. to do with yeah. it could account for something like that so I don't so, know what I was with that
0: I, it's, it's perfect No. Um. So when we think about apologetics, because, you, you know, we've been talking about John Frame, you've even got people like uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, who, who we would, uh, John Frame is probably more of a theologian or an apologetic theologian. I'm probably just making up terms here, but um, like Dr. Craig, he's definitely an apologist. So <clears throat> is a, is apologetics something every Christian should be doing? Is it for an elite few Um
1: what role should apologetics play in our Christian walk? Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned this earlier. I think that apologetics is inevitable. Um, if you are trying to live out the Christian life, if you're pursuing, if you're learning from God's word, engaging with family members, friends, classmates, empl- um, fellow employees, coworkers, you know, and you have unbelievers in your midst, and even Christians who have just tough questions, doubts, um, you know, then you'll be engaged in apologetics. So I guess the question then would be how well do you want to do it? So first Peter's tells us that we need to be prepared. So, um, I personally have never studied apologetics until just the past couple of years. Um, the last time you came down to Chattanooga was when I first had just immersed myself in it. But, um, But yeah, I think every Christian should be engaged in apologetics. I remember uh, having atheist classmates at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga um, in my Latin classes, you know, just having conversation and then uh, asking, you know, why why you're a Christian. I recently went to this thing that my my sister-in-law was involved in, this big uh, rave type party deal. Um, I wasn't. A part of the rave we came up like, the next morning and my wife sold her like christian paintings it was interesting but um i had some uh conversations there with some people where um well what were you talking about what were we talking about i'm sorry to <laughs> do this
0: to you <laughs> the, the role just the role of apologetics in the
1: christian life and who should who should do it oh yeah so you know, people just, if you're in conversation with people, they find out you're a Christian or somehow suspect you're a Christian. Or if, you, if you're if you intentional in conversation and, and directing where the conversation goes, then you may end up talking about relevant topics. And if, you know, if you think about it um, presuppositionally, which is a kind of a buzzword, then then every topic is something that could potentially lead to Christ. So... Yeah, I think everybody should be engaged in apologetics, every Christian, and I I think it's inevitable. It's just a matter of how well we want to do it. Yeah, so essentially if you're living out the faith, this stuff is going to come.
0: Right. Right. So what role then does the Holy Spirit play in apologetics?
1: Well, you know, uh, let's see. First Peter 3 says to always be ready to give a defense when someone asks for the reason for the hope that is within you, and then it says to do so with gentleness and respect. So as far as I'm concerned, I am deeply dependent on the Holy Spirit to treat other human beings (laughs) with gentleness and respect because um, by nature, I'm a sinner and it's so tempting to just want to win an argument or, you know, if someone attacks you personally in a conversation or, you know, calls you stupid because you believe in God or something like that, not to get your feelings hurt or not to get defensive, but just to remember the objective is to point them to Christ. And one of the greatest ways we can do that is to treat them with gentleness and respect, um, even if they're not doing that to us. But also, of course, um, I know, and I didn't plan this out, but in recent Sort of apologetic conversations I've had with um people I've come across, I felt driven by the Holy Spirit to pray for them mm-hmm. to pray that God would take um my words, my arguments, our conversation, and that he by his power would use it to draw them to himself because that's you know that's what he does so
0: then we, it, in the apologetic encounter then. We're dependent on the Holy Spirit, one to not be a jerk, and then <laughs> right, and then right. Uh, and then dependent also that He's going to use the truth, which is how He works. He works through the truth uh, to convince. Yeah, because do
1: because <clears throat> so there are points when you know you want to you want your opponent or your interlocutor to have to pay a high intellectual price. To maintain their view so for example you know if you want say you're talking you want to you ask a question you're trying to do the offense tear down every argument that's raised against the knowledge of God offensive apologetics and so it's your turn and you ask someone you know how do you account for the existence of the universe where does it come from what what is the explanation for the existence of the universe well, if, if you don't have an, in your worldview a concept of a transcendent or necessarily existing being like we do in the Christian worldview, then – so for naturalism, the high intellectual price would be to say that the universe is just there. Uh, in fact, there's this debate. You can, you can just Google it online and find it. It's a debate between Friedrich Koppelsen, which was a Jesuit priest – and he wrote, you know, like eight or ten volumes of the history of philosophy, which is still a standard word today. Um, he debated Bertrand Russell in the mid-1900s on maybe 1960-something on BBC radio. And so Friedrich Cropelston um, pressed Bertrand Russell on this. You know, the universe appears to be contingent. It seems like it doesn't exist by the necessity of its own nature, like it doesn't have to be this way. So how do you account for this? And. Bertrand Russell began and ended his answer, essentially saying the universe is just there and that's all. And and that may be an exact quote. So you want your opponent to pay a high intellectual price um, when pressing on these certain things, but you want to do it with gentleness and respect. And then also in those moments, I just really want to pray that even if they don't get down on their knees right then, that the Holy spirit would just plant that seed, would just um, take that home, that doubt, that their worldview um, just can't hold water, but that the Christian worldview can. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, man.
0: Yeah. And I think this is one reason why people might be a little afraid of apologetics, is like a question like you just asked, uh, you know, how do you even account for the existence of the universe? Right. Um, but I think, too, when you say something like, and I like how you put that. You want your opponent to pay a high intellectual price, um,
1: or going, like,
0: or sorry, or what, uh, no, I, I like I like that. I I think another danger is when when we when we hear stuff like that is like, well, how do I do that humbly? Right, and it's by depending on the Holy Spirit. It's it, the only way you can do it. Because if not, you will come off as pompous and right. Um, so with that, I think that that'd be a good way to transition into your uh, document you sent me. I've got it right here. You got it? Oh, wow. Uh, your, your exist arguments for the existence of God. Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, I just ask you about a couple of these, and then uh yeah, sure. have you ex- explain them? Because I think these are interesting. Um, if you got it, let me know, and we'll go. Oh yeah, I've
1: got it. Okay, and cool. let me just let me just say that. These, I read, um, this happened after I finished Douglas Grootwitz's book called, um, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. And he's a Calvinist, by the way, um, Douglas Grootwitz. A- Amen. <laughs> yeah, I know. I always appreciate that. And he's a philosopher. And the book was excellent. In fact, I read it twice. It was, um, one of the best I've ever read on apologetics and I was just motivated to take some of his arguments. Also I had read um, right before this or after this, John Frame's new book Mm -hmm. on apologetics. And um, so I just wanted to kind of consolidate some of this information and put it into syllogism so I could, you know, use it for easy reference.
0: Well, I know the first time you sent this to me and this is, this is kind of another way that apologetics is meant to serve the church is it had you put this together for your Sunday school class initially? That's right. That's what I thought. That's right. So yeah. Um so let's just go through a couple of these. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh cosmological argument from contingency. Go for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um this is I gotta tell you, this you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants i've learned this from other people i don't feel particularly smart or anything i've just listened a lot and read a lot over the past couple of years and so you know this this sort of thing just doesn't come naturally i guess but the argument from contingency there's um so if something's contingent that means it doesn't have to be the way that it is so some people describe the laws of nature as contingent that means that the laws of nature could have been otherwise. They could say the um, the gravitational constant has a particular number in the laws of nature in the equation of the laws of nature. But that constant, why is it that particular number? We don't we don't know. It it could it seems as though it could have been otherwise. And so the universe as a whole and all of our scientific evidence seems to point to the universe being contingent. Um, all things tend toward decay and that sort of thing. So the principle is the principle of sufficient reason that everything exists, has an explanation of of its existence. Um, If the universe has an – this is the second point in the syllogism – if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is a transcendent personal being. Um, Three, the universe is a contingent thing. Four, therefore the universe has an explanation of its existence And five, therefore, the explanation of the universe is a transcendent personal being. So it's just you have a contingent universe that doesn't exist um, by necessity. So where did it come from and and what is its explanation? Well, its explanation can't be another contingent thing or else it would be a part of the universe for which you're seeking an explanation. So the, the explanation cannot be contingent. It has to be transcendent. It has to transcend the contingent universe, and more than that, it has to be – it has to exist by necessity of its own nature. Now, honestly, in this argument right here, it says if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that that explanation is a transcendent personal being. And I wonder why it says personal other than um, the only other explanation – the only other candidate for something that exists necessarily and is transcendent would be mathematical objects, ma- uh, abstract objects. I think I learned this from William Lane Craig, but um, – well, ab- abstract objects don't have any causal um, influence on anything. They they just are. They just exist. They don't exert any any causal power on anything else. But a a transcendent personal being would be able, by the freedom of the will that it possesses, to exert causal influence. And so that is the only explanation for the existence of a contingent universe.
0: There you go. Awesome. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, There's one on here. It's towards the bottom, that argument from desire. We're talking about the existence of God. Yeah, yeah. I like that one.
1: So this one, I am, am feel the least able to explain of any of these. Um, I read this on Peter Crift. I think that's how you pronounce it, K-R-E-E-F-T, Peter Crift's um, website. Um, he wrote this massive book, which I haven't uh, read, called A Handbook of Christian Apologetics. But anyway, on his website, there was this argument um which i think he said he got from cs lewis so i put it in here <laughs> you want me to go through it
0: yeah I, um yeah
1: just yeah read through it real quick and then we'll, All right. we'll maybe talk about it a little bit yeah the so the first premise is every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire cs lewis talks about this in mere christianity yes um the second premises but there exists in us a desire which nothing in time nothing on earth no creature can satisfy three therefore there must exist something more than time earth and creatures which can satisfy this desire for this something is what people call god and life with god forever (laughs) so this is his argument
0: well i think um C.S. Lewis, I think, touches on this, not only in mere Christianity, but also weight of glory. Um,
1: That's right. The holiday at the sea. Yeah, the holiday of...
0: at the sea. Um, I'm trying to find that Lewis quote. I've got it saved here. I'm just trying to find it. Because he, he basically says, if I find in myself a desire with which this world can't satisfy, I must assume yeah. that I was created for another world. All right. Um, and then I've always... I've always been impressed too by his – have you ever read his biography, Surprised by Joy, or autobiography? It's been
1: been a long time. Yeah, I just remember him – because I studied classical Greek at UTC, I remember him talking about um, being forced to read the Iliad in Greek without having any prior knowledge and – I just didn't understand how that was possible <laughs> because even at the university level, we were all you know, using dictionaries and uh, Greek readers and stuff and anything we get our hands on and translations to help us out. But go ahead.
0: No, yeah. Uh, well, he could do it because he's C.S. Lewis. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, right. That's <laughs> but I, I, I think that's a convincing argument though from desire that you have these desires and obviously they are not being fulfilled. Why, why why are they not being fulfilled? What's well, right? Perhaps because they're there because you are created in God's image, and only one thing can actually satisfy it. That's that's right. That's God. You think
1: of um, Augustine's quote. Oh, you know, at the, it's in the first chapter of Confessions. He says, "Oh, you know, it's, uh, you have made us for yourself, O oh Lord, and our our hearts are restless until they find rest in you." Yeah, I think. You know, I don't particularly like this argument because – just because I like the um, the just – the arguments that are so clear. Um, I, I think the contingency argument is clear. I think the Kalam cosmological argument is clear. Um, you know, a lot of people have listened to Greg Bonson's The Great Debate. It's pretty old now, but still, I mean, he says – and I think this argument is in here. If God does not exist, then – the laws of logic would not exist, but the laws of logic do exist there, you know, and it's impossible to even deny the laws of logic. So there you have a pretty, pretty solid, you know, proof, if you can call it that, that God exists. But this one seems so, seems to rely so much on human intuition. Yeah. But then again, I think this argument appeals to a lot of people who, Mm -hmm. who feel um, that they need something in their life.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's. Um, I know this is something I struggle with in my own life. Is I'm 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 always more concerned about my head than my heart. Um, you know, me too. Um, I'd I'd much rather be a a rationalist than some crazy emotional person. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> but I but I am learning and um and I I'm trying to pray often, especially as I study God's word and theology that the Holy Spirit would give me a sharp mind and a warm heart, um, so that mm-hmm. I might, I might respond. And I, I don't know. I think that just that argument, it's, cause isn't, it, was it Jonathan Edwards that talked, talked about our will is our mind choosing what we desire the most?
1: Oh man. I, I think he that argues. Not about right,
0: yeah. yeah I, that's, that's a very loose paraphrase, but I don't know. I, I not that this would be my only ap- apologetic argument for the existence of God, of course, but I don't know. There's something about it that um, I think it gets to it, it. It helps you realize you're you're interacting with the whole person and not just that person's mind. It's like That's right. you've got intellectual objections, which uh, Paul tells us in Romans one is because you suppress the truth. Um, but you've also got these real and intense desires and they can only that's be fulfilled right. only be fulfilled in god but they can't be fulfilled in god because you're suppressing the truth so it kind of all, right. all all works around so go through your right. go ahead no no you go ahead i was gonna say if you want to go through your uh but just, if i haven't picked your favorite already go through your favorite and we'll make sure that we oh should, my what? yeah uh, favorite argument that's on this okay well man what's my favorite one? I don't know. You've got, like, 12 on here. Let me scroll through here. You don't have, like, 12. You have 12. You actually do have 12.
1: But I don't know. I, I think I'm going to go with... Oh, the moral argument's great. You want to do the ontological argument for fun? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know,
1: I always thought... Um, that the ontological argument would be useless in a you know any evangelistic or apologetic encounter, but I recently watched a debate between um nabil karishi um he's a former Muslim converted to Christianity he wrote a book called oh Seeking Allah finding Jesus and um but he debated uh Shabir Ali who's also debated you know James White and uh, William Lane Craig and some other people. He's very, very good debater, but um, it, the ontological argument came up from both sides in the uh, debate, and and it just occurred to me that maybe the ontological argument would be useful, maybe not so much with a naturalist, but but with a, a Muslim, it might be really useful. Anyway, here's this is like a summary of Alvin Plantinga's ontol- ontological argument. So it was originally. Um, Formulated by St. Anselm, but the most recent version is – or one of the most recent versions is by Alvin Plantinga. Anyway, here it goes. um, It is possible that a maximally great being exists Two, if it is possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. That is, God's existence is not impossible, logically contradictory. So we can conceive of a world in which God does exist. Three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it it exists in every possible world. Otherwise, it would not be maximally great. Four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. And five, <laughs> therefore... A maximally great being exists. (laughs) Now, this maybe is a terrible one to choose for this because there's some other ones that are really useful that maybe we should have talked about. But oh well, like the moral argument is really easy to understand. The kalam argument is super easy. But since we started it, (laughs) yeah. Um, Well, I'll make sure that we share
0: them all. I'll make like we'll share all the arguments when I put the episode up. Sure. All right. Even if we don't go over them.
1: The um. Yeah, the moral and the kalam are just really short and easy to explain and it's something that you could even if you don't use the syllogism you could you could use in everyday conversation. But anyway, um so the ontological argument there's a couple of things like maximally great, what does that mean and then this possible world language um is kind of strange, but um Alvin Plantinga says that there are these things called uh, great making properties, you know, when you're trying to describe what's maximally great, maximally great. So at least in this argument, the one that's focused on is a maximally great being would exist necessarily. So if it's better, the, the assumption or the intuition is that it's better to exist necessarily than to exist contingently. Because if you exist contingently, then there's a possible world, which is like a possible description of reality. It's it's called modal logic. But a pot, when you hear some, a philosopher say possible world, they're just saying um, a possible description of reality. So like there's a possible world in which I had um, gray hair at the age of 20. You know, that's not a necessary truth. But it's possible that it could have been true, so that's a you know a feature of a possible world. But anyway, so the idea is that if it's even possible that a maximally great being exists, so a being that exists necessarily, um, then that being must exist by the rules of logic. <laughs> so the real question becomes – and I, I heard this used in a debate one time, and I thought – It was excellent. It was uh, William Lane Craig versus Victor Stinger at, I think, Oregon State. And and William Lane Craig presented it and just said, well, what do you think to the audience? Do you think it's possible? Can you are are there any logical contradictions in the idea of a maximally great being and the idea of God? Um, And if not, then you need to conclude that God exists. Is it possible if it's even possible in your mind Uh, then you have to conclude by the rules of logic that God does exist. So people usually get hung up on that premise. Um, Premise three says, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. So some people have trouble understanding, well, how does that follow? It's simply that if this being did not exist necessarily, which would mean that he would exist in every possible description of reality, then he would not be maximally great. Gotcha. Anyway, so. Yeah, so...
0: No, so like if if he were to exist in one world, he has to exist in every world.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is and there... so, as far as Islam goes, you know, I thought this was really great, and Abil did this in his, the conclusion of his um, argument in his debate with Shabir Ali, and he said that he thinks that Allah cannot be maximally great. Um, and he talks about... Allah um Allah only loves those who love him um you love Allah and then Allah loves you um and there are some other things that he pointed out, but there's a deficiency of love in the being of Allah so um Allah is also so ah uh, say you know the the theological term uh, aseity. he is so independent, so transcendent um that he cannot be bound um, even to his own word. So in in Islamic theology, as as I've read about it and understand it, is that he can change his mind for any reason, and he owes no one an explanation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so, you know, Allah lacks some sort of humility, um, uh, sort of condescension that the Christian God has. In the Christian worldview, God humbles himself. He reveals his word, and he keeps his promises, um, I don't think that concept is there in the Quran. And the idea that God loves everyone, even if they don't love him, mm-hmm. and, and wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth, that sort of idea is a Christian idea. It's not an Islamic idea. And I think that that corresponds more to what we as humans um Uh, our intuition would tell us about the nature of God. You know, we know that love is good. We know that humility and self-sacrifice is good. Um, We know that fatherhood is good and sonship is good. And so the Christian worldview has all of those things wrapped up in the maximally great being. Those would all be great making properties. Um, But but Allah does not have those things. So I, I haven't really worked this out. This is totally recent for me. But I was thinking I've always thought the ontological argument would be useless. But, but now it seems like, you know, if you, if you think about it and maybe work how a conversation would go, this, um, this could be really useful um, in conversations with Muslims. And I've never had a conversation with a Muslim, so maybe that's coming up soon. Yeah.
0: yeah you never know. God could be preparing you even now. Right. Uh, it so- seems
1: to me as though that's the pattern. Like, as I've read books and gone through these different things, it's like God has dropped people in my path. Where I can have a conversation about it, unbelievers, and and I don't feel like I've pursued it. I feel like it has pursued me the, mm-hmm. the opportunity, and so um, that's just neat how the Lord works.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So when we talk about these arguments for like the existence of God, and when we talk about apologetics, how do we make the bridge from these? Um, how do we cross the bridge from like these intellectual arguments for the existence of God and and get to Christ? which is we've talked about some differences between Christianity and other worldviews, but probably the, the biggest difference is, is Christ. So where where do we, uh, or how, how do we get from these like the cosmological or these desire arguments (laughs) or ontological arguments? How do we get from there to, to Christ?
1: Right. Um, man, that's tough. Um, you know, these arguments are useful at times, but I was telling you about my um my sister in law's boyfriend. I've had several conversations with him in the past few months, and we talk i know that he really uh, loves uh, my sister in law and um, probably wants to get married to her so i I wrote him a letter um we had a conversation about um God and Christianity and he um asked me a lot of questions and um in fact he challenged me um to uh give him a good reason <laughs> like he said it just like that give me a good reason to believe in God. It was this strangest just like fall out of the sky conversation. And so we went through some things. We went through you know mathematics, logic, morality and, and some things where I was trying to convince him that these are all features of of the Christian worldview. And at the end of it, he said, at the end of this conversation, he said that he doesn't need anyone to tell him how to live his life and that he doesn't trust anybody else other than himself to tell him how to live his life. Now, I didn't talk anything about how he should live his life or how he shouldn't live his life, you know, about Mm -hmm. his patterns of behavior. So I thought it was interesting that he responded that way and he seemed kind of agitated. And and um and my wife tells me that I, I wasn't didn't come across as antagonistic or anything, which is something I'm I'm always worried about um that I do. But I wrote him a letter and told him, you know, I can give you arguments for God all day, but you want to get married to Shanna and I'm going to tell you that the only worldview in which marriage makes sense is a really, truly, objectively beautiful thing is a Christian worldview. Because marriage is the the way you as a man get to humble yourself and be a servant to your wife as Christ humbled himself and died for the church. And uh, that's the picture we get in scripture of marriage. That's that's why marriage is objectively beautiful. And, you know, I think – I think, and this is something I've really learned from Albert Moeller and John Frame and the presuppositionalists, you know, is that every conversation um, has elements in it because this is God's world has elements in it that if we think about it, they um, all point to Christ. So um, that was – I don't know if it really answered your question you know how do we get to Christ but it it depends on the conversation so I, I was talking to him about or wrote to him about marriage and you know I bet it could be i could bet it could be anything in conversation
0: no, I think you're right um the the uh we had a leadership meeting at our church probably a month ago, and uh uh you know how leadership meetings go. Somewhat, you know, it's like we're, what's you know, what are we going to try to focus on a little bit more this year? And it, our, for our church, it was evangelism. Um, and as we were talking about it, it's like you know, evangelism is not so much a system; it's just a, it's a lifestyle. Because for the Christian, if our if our worldview is saturated with the gospel, then we can take any conversation and turn it into a gospel conversation, whether it's marriage, money, uh, dating. Right. You name it, work. I mean, it, I think that's how we do it. It's just art. Our, art. Our, um, what's Paul say? Take every thought captive for Christ. Right. Um, and I, when we're doing that, and I've got a lot of work to do on that, but I think when we're doing that, it, it's, it's like you said, it, it's just going to be natural. It's just going to happen because um, you you can't help because that's the way you that's the way right. that your thinking has been formed by the Holy Spirit conforming it to the Word, uh,
1: the Word right. of God. So. You think, yeah. I mean, you think you're talking to somebody about politics instead of just spending the entire time complaining about the political system um, and about the candidates who you hate or the Supreme Court justices that you hate. Um, I don't know. It seems like for a Christian that might be an opportunity to say, you know, I participate. Uh, my worldview tells me to participate in the um, political process from the, from my worldview. But – um you know, I'm so glad to be a citizen of Jesus's kingdom. You know, he's my God. The, this political scene changes and the ideal of justice gets destroyed every day. But, um, but I know that one day i in the new heavens and the new earth that these sorts of things will be restored and justice will be executed. You know, I mean, just these sorts of things, you know, in conversation. I don't think they have to sound cheesy or cliche, but they can just be the truth of what we believe. You know, hey, yeah. we're talking about politics. Um, you know, and I believe that the ideal of justice is the ideal of justice because one, God exists, but also because God is going to keep His promise He revealed in the Scripture, and He's going to restore order and justice to, the, justice to the world. I don't know; you could can, can probably think of any.
0: Well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, i split this into two parts, part one of uh, two here. Big thanks to Blaine for joining us. hope this has been helpful. I uh, look forward to uh, part two of the interview. I will have that up for you on the, the 22nd. So uh, thank you guys for listening, and um, you can find all the resources that we've been talking about on uh, the show notes at theologyforyou.com. Until next time, thanks, guys.